I have compassion on the people, he said. 4,000 men plus women and children. I mean, that would mean probably more than 10,000 people, maybe 12,000 people. The northeast of the Sea of Galilee, they're in, uh, it's, a, it's not wilderness like Alaska, right? Um, but you can't just go get a burger either, right? You, got, you need water, you know, that kind of thing. And they've been there three days. And his disciples are getting itchy. They're like, we're all going to die here. <laughs> you know, Moses in the wilderness. Remember that? Uh, we're all going to die here. What do we do? Jesus says, I have compassion on the people. The Greek word there I want you to learn today. There's no cards in the pew in front of you. If you can learn Greek just by listening, and, and then that's great. You can probably do it by ear. Uh, we'll start slowly. Splag. Can you say splag? Splag. Okay, that's the first part. Next part is tough. It's knidzo. Knidzo. Think like the word, like if you wrote the word I know I am me on the board and you had the K in there and you pronounced it. It's like that within a Z thrown in after the N. Knidzo. Well, yeah, N-I-Z. Okay. So knidzomai. Give it a try. Knidzomai. Splag knidzomai. Now pretend that you are Alexander the Great, champion and king of, he called himself king of kings, having conquered all the masses and you stand over all you have seen, you say, Splag, Kandinsoma. Because that's Greek. Go ahead, say it. Uh, it's, it's more powerful than Latin. Latin makes you want to sing, Greek makes you want to conquer something. You know, German too, if, unless they're singing. Sometimes when they're singing. But language is beautiful. Splag knidzomai means, in Greek, my spleen, I know. Okay? <laughs> Literally, my spleen, I know. Because for the Greeks, they knew that as much as your mind told you what you thought and your heart felt what it wanted, there was something else inside your body that was really in charge of a lot of stuff. They would call that the soul. I don't think they quite said the soul lived in the spleen, but more or less, that's how it worked out. Uh, so if he says, I know my spleen, it means I know my soul. And then he says, Splykinismi epiton aklan, I know my soul about this crowd. And his soul is, I don't want him to faint on the way. Jesus is so beautiful as a king. He's Alexander the Great. He's mega Jesus. Alexander the mega, right? Mega man made it sound like a cartoon. But Alexander Megos was, is the greatest name in the history of the world after Jesus Christ, I think. China may debate us on these points, right? But Alexander Megos, Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords, the conqueror of all, who by his wounds has paid for us. And our stories this morning where he is uh, out amongst the nations, amongst the Gentiles, we hear about this woman who comes and says, will you please heal me? Heal my daughter, excuse me. Will you please heal my daughter? Now, now keep in mind, why is Jesus out here among the Gentiles? I mean, the man's tired. He's got enemies. He's got crowds. They're, they're here to like get some food and take three days. 
You know, that's what they're about. And this woman finds him. He's like, hey, help me. And he says, the miracles are for the Jews, lady. I'm summarizing, but that's the conversation. Okay. The miracles are for the Jews and, you know, short circuit. Let's go. Why? You want to ask why? Why? Because that's what got them to kill him. Okay. So the Messiah came with miracles for his own people so that they would reject him, display him on the world crucified, show the glory and wisdom of God. Many of them repent and believe a whole remnant. And then the gospel would go out to the entire world, not just to them. That's what Paul's getting at. Uh, a little bit, and what really then uh, Isaiah got at for us this morning, she got it right then. She said, yeah, but you're right here. Lady, the miracles are for the Jews. Yeah, Jesus, but you're right here. And call me what you will, I know who you are. She asked for some bread in the metaphor, and then what happens next? He's out in the wilderness with a bunch of non-Jews who don't deserve a single miracle, and he's not there to give them one. And he says, I want to give them one anyway. Here's some bread. Bread straight from heaven. I can tie this all to the Lord's Supper quite nicely. So please understand that the miracle goes on and on and on. It never ends. If you're looking for miracles, you're missing out that life is one. Stop looking for miracles behind the magic scenes and see what's right in front of you. Know that this morning, the body and blood of our King, who is not dead but alive, joins with your flesh, your heart, your soul, your spleen, <laughs> to give you faith and trust in Him in the midst of these latter days, which Paul's going to be really clear about some good stuff in, in Ephesians 2 and 3. And that's why I want to dig into that one more carefully. So if you've got the bulletin, feel free to use the bulletin. Once we have the New King James Pew Bibles, we're going to stop printing the Bible in the bulletin to say some cash, uh, and uh, the you will be able to like look up the text all the way. So you know how today the gospel was sort of not really finished. That, that'll stop soon, and our pew Bibles will be here soon. But for today, pew Bible or bulletin, find your way to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, where we're going to start at verse 19. Again, this is after Paul said last week, do you remember? You know, Lutheran memorization verses come in your way. It is by grace you have been saved, and this through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. It's like an emphatic statement that there is no question. We don't save ourselves. Jesus is the Savior. When you say he's the Savior, it doesn't mean 99 and a half and three quarters percent Savior. And then I got to say yes, or I got to do this, or maybe later there's more. No, when Jesus saves you, he binds you up in his hands like a shepherd grabbing a sheep. He calls you to his arms like a mother gathering her children. He makes you to kneel and anoints you a king and a knight like an emperor on his throne. That's what Jesus does when he baptizes all of us into this fellowship, this shape of week in, week out, eating the bread and wine together after being taught what the Bible says. Lutherans call that word and sacrament, right? That's what we call it, and then no one knows what we're talking about, right? Uh, But we do it, right? It's beautiful to do this. Here now, called into this word, Ephesians 2.19 says, now therefore you, and take this with all the force of the you, but think of it as plural, It's plural you. It's not just talking to you by yourself in the pew with your Bible. It's talking to people behind you, to the left and right of you, the people who come to the late service, right? All Christians. But right now, this morning, us in this room, okay? Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, 
That means first to God, second to the temple in Zion that God doesn't plan to rebuild, third to the temple that he has rebuilt, the body of Jesus Christ. You're not strangers or foreigners. You're not outsiders. You're not Gentiles to these things. And don't miss that means you're not strangers to each other in this room either. Yeah. If you're on TV, I'm a stranger. See? And here, no. You're insiders, right? We are all insiders in Christ when we believe in Christ is the point of this. A church is a gathering of such together to hear the word, receive the sacrament. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he is proclaiming the gospel right now to you, right? Uh, what is the gospel narrowly defined? Lutherans have argued about this enough that we can define at least several different ways the word gospel is used in the Bible. Uh, the most clear one isn't the way that means law and gospel. It's the one that refers to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the one that everybody else in the history of Catholicism, which includes the whole church ever, kind of kind of uses the word a lot, like the gospel of Matthew. Like everybody says that, right? But if you take your Lutheran law gospel, you know, diagnosis machine and you, and you shove it over that word, it falls apart because a Sermon on the Mount sure sounds like a bunch of stuff to do. And before too long, you're not sure if you're saved or not. So, so don't go at Matthew with the law gospel dynamic kind of foolishly. Understand there's a narrow definition of the gospel too, right? The narrow definition of the gospel comes in a, a multiple ways. One narrow definition is the books that we just read, right, that were talked about. Another narrow definition of the gospel means the specific good news, say, in Romans chapter 1, the son of David is risen from the dead. That's what Paul says the gospel is, Yeah. Here, he's saying that the gospel is the result of that, all right? The result of that. I'm just going to jump ahead to what the text is telling you. But it's not without the gospel of the son of David risen from the dead, right? So, so when I say that the gospel is that you are heirs to the promises of God in the Old Testament, in the King, Jesus Christ being fulfilled, that's also the gospel, yeah? But I haven't used the word forgiveness yet, you notice, right? Which is the way that the Lutherans most like to use the word gospel or, or maybe the word justification. So, so please understand that the gospel is a very broad, broad good news in the Bible. And it means many, many, many good things. I'd even say it's, it's such a full gospel that you can't contain it, except for wouldn't you know, I sound like a Pentecostal the moment I said that. There's a whole doctrine called the full gospel. And if I say full gospel, suddenly someone out there is going to think I'm talking about how you can miraculously speak in tongues and heal yourself. So we're in, we're in a pickle here with this word is, is kind of what I'm trying to get at. Uh, but this is what is behind the word, that you are no longer strangers and foreigners to the almighty God who is the King Jesus Christ, but fellow citizens. He calls you citizens. You're in his country now, his land. Yeah. With the saints, that'd be all the holy people who died before you. you know? Those who've come before, he's really referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's, that's who he's thinking of when he says that. That's who we should think of, that we're in their family now. We're in their family now. Members of the household of, again, God. 
God. Do you believe in God? I say I believe in God. There's a psalm I pray often, um, which leads me to say this line. It says, um, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And almost all the time when I have that go through my mind and I ask the question, what can man do to me? I mean, I can imagine quite a bit, honestly. And so combining that with, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I'm always kind of caught with, well, this, well, that, well, this, well, that. And then, well, so I guess I'll be, a, how am I not going to be afraid? Jesus has been my prayer. The answer that I'm finding again and again is that I just seem to think man has the right to kill me. Like I think I might get in a car accident or something and then I would die. I don't believe God would have killed me that day. I think I would have done it or some other person would have done it. I, I don't think that it's really him who is the author of life and death. Like as I act about my life, I mean, I'll confess he's the author of life and death. I believe he's the author of death and life. But as I walk about and act, my, my animal person just doesn't really. And so I get afraid of all sorts of stuff that might kill me as if that were up to me. You know, stuff from far away, especially, right? So see here again, you're in the household of God now. Nothing really can go wrong. I mean, you can take a test with math, get all the wrong answers and get an F and it was wrong and you won't graduate and you won't get the job, right? But that doesn't mean you're going to hell. Doesn't mean you're a bad person even. Maybe you're a genius and don't learn that way. Who knows, you know? You're members of the household of God now. He thinks you're valuable. He thinks you're worth saving. He thinks you're worth saving not for later, but for today. Uh, having been, verse 20, let's move into the text again a little more. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So, so what is your ground as members in Christ, the apostles and prophets? Now, Lutherans are very quick to point out, and I don't think we're wrong, but it takes like three steps to get there. So it's a fast argument. But they're very quick to point out that this means the Old and New Testament for us now. Now, for Paul, uh, he probably meant a deeper thing than that, that included Old and New Testament, but which we don't get to add to now. Right? He meant whenever the Holy Spirit wrote things down for the sake of the entire church, that that's the foundation at the time it's given. So it isn't even the writings of the apostles and prophets we should be thinking of. It's their preaching and their lives. Read the book of Acts. That's the foundation, what Paul does. How he's a spectacle to the world and ends beheaded before the emperor, right? That again is, is them. And so that's why their words that they wrote, we consider them inspired and without error. I mean, if that guy got it wrong, uh, then we shouldn't be Christians, right? Like, like Peter's the same way. Right? We trust them because of what they saw. We trust them because of who they were. They wrote it down. They are our foundation, not as men, but as those who confess the word, the name. Here he is, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Right. So we talk about scripture being the foundation, but it's only because it's his scripture. It's Jesus writing. It's the story about Jesus' words. And he didn't put any of it down, which should actually convince you all the more how amazing this guy was because no one in history had that happen. Everybody wrote their own stuff. Marcus Aurelius, king of wisdom. I know everything. You should listen to me. Here are my books. I mean, really? It's famous. He's great. He really was wise. You should read his stuff. But like his point of view was, I'm great. Listen to me. Jesus didn't write any of it down and it was all being written down thousands of years before he showed up. What a thing. The chief cornerstone has come, though. He is risen. 
Alleluia. In whom, verse 21, we, the whole building, he calls us a building here. The church is not a building unless you mean the body that is us humans. Through time being picked up and taken into a kingdom that will be everlasting, that building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So if you can imagine that man is not just one guy, but man as a, as a, as a kind Humankind, mankind, all starts and therefore is ruled by the spirit of, really is the extension of one guy, and that guy's Jesus now. It used to be Adam, now it's Jesus. Adam still has, you know, blood running around. Um, but Jesus is the one who has done this for us, growing us into his body. This doesn't mean that, like, there's a cell on Jesus' body where he sits on the chair and like, you're that cell. I mean, that's, that's cute, you know, for kids, I guess. I think it confused most people. No, like you're you. And you are under the brotherhood, fatherhood of Jesus Christ now. You're his body just here, not in heaven. Although he says you're in heaven too, because it's all his. He's ruling everything, right? That doesn't mean you won't die. Doesn't mean your flesh won't still try to tempt you. All the things of Romans 7 are true. But the Holy Spirit now lives inside of you, and I say you singular, not just you plural. But it's pretty important that the you plural happens. That those of us who have the Holy Spirit alive inside of us, because the word of Jesus is on our lips, the name of God is on our prayers, and we read the Bible together, trusting in him. Those of us who individually have such faith, strengthen that faith when we gather together, and the Holy Spirit is among us. And this happens not by talking about the weather and football scores so much as by speaking the name of Jesus to each other, asking about the burdens of life, praying that God would send answers in the name of Jesus to the trials that you hear about from those you're talking to. Not trying to fix every solution, but understanding sometimes the problems are the answers. That kind of thing, being built together, being fitted together. It takes some courage, it really does. And, you know, If you've been here at St. Paul a long time, you probably know a lot of people, and you probably don't know quite a few people, right? And meeting new people, uh, it's tough. If I didn't have the collar on and like kind of be paid to look at the door every time somebody comes in, I'd probably be sitting over there in a corner, you know, have my family guarding me from you, and I'd be like, you know, praying quietly and hoping you'd leave me alone so I could go home. But that's my actual personality, right? Um, I've worked very hard not to be that way for the sake of the kingdom. I don't think that helps the kingdom when you're a pastor. Um, but that, that is what I would do. I understand how afraid... It can be at church. And I understand how uh, pains from the past, other things that maybe get you in a habit and a pattern. But I really want you to believe that this morning, the body of Christ is this group that you are also an extension of. And every prayer in this room matters for you today. And when we go out together, we're stronger based upon how we make eye contact how we shake hands or touch in some way to recognize and love each other, and how we then speak, how we bark at each other. Do we bark in anger about stuff that nobody knows anything about or we can't fix, or do we bark in encouragement with words that we know will endure forever? Right? That's the building up of the church 
And again, Ephesians 2 is the promise, not that you'd better or else, or if only we would, we could. This is the promise. Do you call on the name of Jesus? Do you confess the creed? Do you bind into yourself today the strong name of the Trinity? Well, then no, it's true. You are being built together for a dwelling place of God by in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God inside of you. And my daughter asked me, can I pray to the Holy Spirit? And I said, yes, absolutely. In the history of the church, we're very agreed on this. We got petitions from the liturgy and the altar book. Holy Spirit. So yes, the answer is yes. But, but think about it for a second here. You're praying to God who's inside of you. Not you, but one with you, like a family member, and enlivening you so that your spirit is now holy too. So Jonathan is holy, and then God the Holy Spirit is holy, and they're both up in this pulpit right now. Now, that's by his doing, and I would suggest I'm not alone. You all have the same promise. Your baptism promises you this, right? So what happens when you pray to the Holy Spirit inside of you? Well, this is the thing to think about. Most pagans teach that God's inside of you. Just sit there and meditate for three hours a day for like however long until your guru says you're good enough and maybe some demon will talk to you. If not, you're enlightened now. Right? Uh, everyone's trying to make their spirit holy. God comes alongside of you and makes you holy with the words that go into you. So here's the key to this. We're not going to ever pray to the Holy Spirit by looking for God in our hearts. That's a lie from the devil. Instead, look for the word of God in your heart. Read the Bible. And when you know that the Bible is coming out of your heart, you can trust that pretty good. You can still be deceived. The devil uses the Bible well, but let's just start with like we're all infants here, right? More Bible, more good, yeah? So, so trust the Bible, not your heart, but trust your heart to know what you want, right? And then these come together, and suddenly your spirit will find some peace. I promise you that. Oh, Holy Spirit, give this congregation, you who are in all of us, give us peace according to your word in our consciences and souls, so that we would know that we are stewards of creation by whom even the trees and animals see God walking around while never believing we are God without you. For it is your blood alone that saves us, Jesus Christ, and we are members of your kingdom. Hallelujah. Amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. So like that. Like that. I don't do Holy Spirit direct much. I'm still really loving King Jesus. I'm moving into, wait, I got a father up there too? That's nice. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's where my prayers are. But you as members of the Spirit must, must believe you are members of the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, for this reason, right? Because of all that good news, now he's going to get a little grammatically difficult to tell us how he has a special role in it. Uh, he says this, for this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And you'll notice the dash there. I think that dash is the way the new King James is going to fix the run-on fragmentary sentence that occurs in the Greek at this point. Like Whoever Paul's talking to in prison, who's writing the letter down for him, Paul went on for a while, and the guy couldn't quite catch up enough to put a period right until uh, later on. It's still clear what he's saying. We just, you know, there's... Don't expect this um, for this reason to come back so much. Although it does. It, the whole thing is, is saying this. So he has a reason. But he wants to make sure you know about his visions. 
right? So he says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. Now that's where we can run on from there a little bit. He's going to talk about uh, the revelation and the mystery. But that whole part there is that he had a revelation, right? And you know about how he was going to kill Christians in Damascus and he got knocked down by a giant flash of light and Jesus began to talk to him. Baptism a few days later, scales fell off his eyes, like all of that stuff. From then on, um, you know, he wants to, he, he knows, he, he believes he is being told, he's set apart, he's different. He's not going to be like every Christian that there ever was, even though he could pray that all were like him, which he says in 1 Corinthians. So, you know, that, that all is kind of there, but he gets down to, you know, made known the mystery, the mystery. That's what we're driving at in the, in the whole section. Um, and he goes off, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, right? So if you go back to chapter one, and chapter two, you will know what he's trying to talk about next, right? If you've understood what he's meant up to this point about how amazing it is that Christ has made all of mankind one with his body by declaration as free gift, like a king who doesn't have enough people at his party waiting for his party at the end of the world. In that space, which in other ages, verse five, was not made known to the sons of men. So there's a, there's a limitation on this promise uh, that it has not always been seen by all people as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets so that, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Oh, he goes on, of which I too may become a minister according to the gift of grace. Let's see if we can pull this, this apart here and, and make that line hang together, all right? So the mystery of Christ, which is that all mankind is saved in Christ. And once you are saved in Christ, you're not just saved as you are. You're now a member of the body of the man who is God with everything that that means. You're a member of the kingdom of the king who is God with everything that that means, right? Um, as he's written before, uh, in other ages was not made known to the, it says, sons of men. I, I'm going to run that back through Genesis for a second, where you have the sons of men and the sons of God. The faith of salvation by the man who will slay the dragon, born of woman, to defeat the devil, Jesus. I go all the way back to Genesis. So, so he isn't saying that no one ever knew it was coming. What he's saying is only the people who inherited it narrowly think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down to David, all the way down to the people of Jerusalem and Israel through Judah into Babylon, back, Jesus Christ comes, who we now would have called Jews, but it doesn't really apply to them, right? That which did apply to them until Jesus came now applies to everybody. That's where I would say it's a full gospel or a fuller gospel, but I would be accused of things I didn't mean by saying it. It's now being made known to us the Spirit who once only spoke through the apostles and prophets, right, is going to make you an heir of the same body, partaker of the promise through this gospel, this good news. 
So if I may, what this suggests is that anyone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ is now, by virtue of Jesus Christ, a prophet and an apostle. Now, you're not one of the 12 apostles, and you're not Isaiah. So don't get ahead of yourself, but just realize you've been baptized into this ministry. No one's outside of this ministry. Nobody goes home and just goes home. The church is the church. We're a kingdom. We live forever. You've been baptized into this ministry. You're a prophet. What does that mean? Well, when you say the creed every week, you confess Jesus Christ. That's prophecy. Prophecy is not telling the future. Telling the future is not a gift that is normally given to the church. If it is given, I will be skeptical. I will always be skeptical of someone who tries to tell the future because telling the future is what magic is usually trying to do. So don't try to tell the future. Don't talk to dead and believe that the word of God in your heart, that is the Bible, when it comes out of you, is the Holy Spirit fulfilling the role of prophet in the present through his church all over the planet. And get on board. Ride that wave. Put it in your lips. Yeah? Paul became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given by him to make this happen, right? That, that's it. But so here is the mystery of the church. That's what Paul is getting at. Church is not a building. Church, it's a people. Church, as a people, we are stones in a building that is the body of the one man, Jesus Christ. Not a metaphor, the truth. When we feast on bread and wine, his body and blood, human and God, enter into us and make us one with him. And according to the breathing of his Holy Spirit by the inspired and without error scriptures, when these scriptures come out of us, we are him in the present, his body in the present, proclaiming the day that he already reigns right now. And he reigns in grace right now. There's a time of penalty coming soon. But again, right now, we have been given a new spirit, not of Sinai to fear and shrink back, right? But of Jerusalem to draw near and praise, to trust and believe that whatever God has in store for us tomorrow, today, Jesus Christ is king. And we are his people. In the name of Jesus. Amen.